Thank you both for that reminder that it is by grace that we are saved and set free. Good morning, everyone. Uh, this morning we're going to begin to uh, or continue to consider the calls for grace and forgiveness. I have two readings for you this morning uh, from Proverbs and from the Gospel of Matthew. Please stand for readings from God's Word this morning. Our first reading is from Proverbs chapter 10. It's a bit of a preview. We're going to be walking through the book of Proverbs this summer together as a congregation. And Proverbs 10:12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And then as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, hearing the words of Jesus, as he teaches, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother and sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift to the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. This is the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, good morning again. Before I get started teaching a bit more on what we just heard, strong words from Jesus, I want to tell you quickly uh, about a mission trip that I took to Costco this week. Uh, in this, what I call a season of second chances. And I always have to consider when I go to Costco, mission. Because otherwise it's very frustrating. Because, you know, we have seven people in our house, right? I go there almost once, twice a month, and the bill is so astronomical, it's very upsetting. So I go, okay, Lord, this is a mission trip. And every time I've gone with that attitude, something pretty amazing has happened, sometimes small, and this one pretty significant. So I'm bringing my cartload up to the, to the, uh, to the counter. I'm by myself. I don't have room even for the water. There's too much in my carts. But I'm bringing it to my cart, and I'm setting it on the belt, and I'm getting ready. And, and keep in mind, I know everyone else is busy too. I don't have to, there's not a lot of time, so I do keep it moving. I want to get out of there as well. But I noticed that the cashier at Costco was somebody I'd seen before. I'd had a little conversation with him maybe almost a year ago, uh, kind of as things were starting to loosen up from COVID. 
And, and again, as we were keeping the line moving last year, he and I were talking about the need to see family again. And I told him, you know, it had been a long time since I'd seen my brother who lives just in Ohio, but it's just been a long time since we've spent any time together. And he stopped bleeping. This was about a year ago. Stopped bleeping. And he said, you know, you really need to see your brother. It's very important to stay connected to family. And, and he really was like, okay. I was like, okay, great. I'll do it. I'll do it. So by, it was partly that and then the circumstances of my dad getting ill and passing in the last year I was able to spend and still spending more time with my brother. And it's been really great. So as I get back, I'm like, oh, there's that cashier again. And, and he's bleeping through. He's doing his stuff. And I said, you know, it's okay. You see a thousand people a day. I'm sure you don't remember me. But last year we had a conversation about you saying I needed to see my brother and spend time with him. And I just wanted to thank you for those words. It really blessed me. I did actually spend some time with my brother this week or this year. He stopped bleeping again. I'm sorry for keeping you waiting, by the way, if you were in line behind me. But he says, you know, I don't exactly remember that, but I'll tell you why I probably did say that. He's like, I had a falling out with my brother about seven years ago, and we hadn't spoken. And, and finally, he said, I reached out to him, and I said, Dude, buddy, we got to work this out. And he's like, and we did. And, uh, and he starts tearing up now. This is in the Costco line, right? He's tearing up, and he's saying, you know, we had some, some kind of fallout. In the end, it was just like, we just need to get over it and reconnect. So we started becoming, you know, close again. He's like, it's not perfect, but, you know, we're back together, and it feels good to be as a family again. Bleep, bleep, bleep. That'll be $348. <laughs> so special moment kind of wrecked. But that just reminded me again. I was, like, so thankful for that because it reminded me that we are truly in a season of second chances. And we've noticed that with the weather as it's changed finally, sort of, from you know, the cold gray of winter to spring. And maybe your season of second chances looks like this, with more of a, a, a baseball in it because you're spending more time at the field watching games, watching your kids, watching grandkids, hopefully just being outside and enjoying all the beauty of the weather. But it's so great that we tend to forget sometimes how miserable winter can be that I always so when as the season changes, it can be uh, a hindrance to us remembering, oh, I've got to go work those kind of things out with brothers or sisters or family members or old friends that I have of some falling out with. And so I've been calling on this to be a season of second chances, learning to live and give grace and forgiveness, especially in those places where we may be harboring onto unforgiveness. So I want to remind you that those teachings are online. This is the third of the fourth uh, part of that series. And if you have not yet, it's good to go back and re-listen to those teachings. I think there's something important there for you. But a quick recap of one point that I wanted to point out to you from last week, which is that God forgives us not if we forgive others. Because we hear that in that Lord's Prayer, right? Lord, forgive us our sins. We say it every week. As we forgive those who sin against us. And that's not the only place the word talks about this exchange or this relationship of giving and sharing forgiveness that we have received. But we can hear those words and even the words today and be like, oh, maybe I'm not doing it. But I want to remind you again, God doesn't forgive us if we forgive others. God forgives us so we can forgive others. He sets us free. Our chains are broken so we can be vehicles and voices of freedom and grace to those around us. He, by his grace, wants to equip us for every good work doing his will that we may work in us that which is pleasing in him through Christ Jesus. That's Hebrews 13, 12. God doesn't forgive us if he forgives us so we can be empowered 
to give and forgive forgiveness uh, to those that have, have wronged us or we have wronged with. Let's look back quickly at those words of Jesus from Matthew 5, that strong teaching. Sometimes people call it hard teaching from Jesus. I don't know if it's hard. It's maybe hard to follow up on, but it's important teaching. This is Jesus in Matthew 21 through 24. He said, you have heard it said from long ago, ancient times you shall not murder. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. Yeah, of course, we understand that. You murder someone that spiritually puts you on very dangerous ground. But he says to you, if you're angry with your brother or sister, you will also be liable to judgment. Wow, this is pretty strong already, right? Didn't Jesus get angry at things? Yes, he did. But his was a righteous anger in the few times that we saw it. More importantly, he was a man of great grace and great forgiveness and calls us to do the same. What he's saying here is murder, just like harboring unforgiveness or bitterness, are both a matter of the heart and can keep us liable to being judged or having to internal judgment for that. He goes on to say, if you're angry then with your brother or sister, and again, Jesus had been angry before, but it was a righteous anger. Ours can tend to be an unrighteous anger. And then he goes on to say, if you insult someone, if you say to them, uh, you know, raka, which is not in our translation, but raka essentially means dumb. If that's how you insult them and you say they're stupid or essentially empty-headed, that's what he's saying with raka. If you insult them, if you say they're dumb or stupid or empty of mind, or if you insult them and you say you are a fool, and what do we know about fools in Scripture? It's more than just, oh, you're frustrating to me. A fool, according to Scripture, is one who says in his heart, there is no God. A fool says in, in his heart, they don't know the Lord. They deny his ways. So when we would use those words in insult, we would say that person is stupid or dumb or empty of mind or they're a foolish, they're empty of heart. What we're saying is that is a non-person to me. They are empty in their head and in their heart. They're essentially a void of God's image. They don't mean anything to me, and they are unworthy of grace because they are empty in their head and in their heart. And then I think about how often that I hear people say, oh, I had a problem with this person in my past, but I have learned to forget it. And what typically they mean is they've forgotten that person. They've erased that person and continue to walk in the pain of unforgiveness. So Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't insult them. Don't write them off as unworthy of grace. If you have unresolved conflict, says Jesus, then you're better off leaving your gift here at the altar and going and being reconciled. If you're attending to worship and you realize in your head or your heart, man, I have unresolved conflict with a brother or sister, that's going to hinder you from worship anyway. You're better off leaving your gift here and going out right now and like my cashier friend at Costco, going and making it work, figuring out some way to reconcile with that person because otherwise we risk, and I want you to hear me this morning, we risk worshiping in vain. Strong teaching from Jesus. I read a commentary that I think aptly kind of wraps it this way. This is a preaching commentary. It says, Jesus is saying to us that we must not think that we are safe just because we have not shed blood. We are guilty enough to receive punishment if we have harbored anger and contempt. And in, the, in view of this, we cannot escape the truth that all of us can potentially be murderers. 
We have all murdered someone in our minds and in our hearts by holding on to unforgiveness. As we have treasured thoughts about others that can be as foul as murder. So as you hear those words, as we think about unmet forgiveness, unforgiveness that you have not gone through, or grace that you have not extended, or maybe even someone that you have done wrong in your past that you have not reconciled with. Remember he said, if someone has something against you, go and be reconciled. Who might you be thinking about right now? What situation comes to your head or your heart when we talk about needing to extend forgiveness and grace? Where do you go in your head or in your mind that you know you have to be reconciled with before you can fully enter back into worship with your heart. Now, if you're like me, there's a part of your brain that is a lawyer, and he is right now pulling the files of the law in your head to go, yeah, but, but, and he's working through all the arguments of why actually your situation is different than anyone else and actually you would be able to plead your case. We all have this part of our brain that does that. It'll instantly start to go into arguments to justify our anger or justify our unforgiveness. Yeah, but they did. Why do we so easily protect ourselves from this kind of teaching? Why do we do that? Why do we so naturally and so easily resist that call to be reconciled with people that we have beef with, that we have unprocessed forgiveness and, and, and no grace with, why do we protect ourselves for that? And for, I want to give you an answer uh, from some ancient wisdom from a Welsh minister. Uh, he was a minister of, of uh, excuse me, Westminster uh, Chapel in London long ago, the Reverend Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism that's in you, that lawyer, he's in, that's there as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. There is only one way to know that we are sinners and that is to have some dim, glimmering concept of God, conception of God, which I'm sure the great Reverend Jones would agree with me is found in looking to God and is, who is so gracious and so loving and so kind. There's something in us, that little lawyer, that will pull out the files and help us justify our anger and justify our unforgiveness. Yeah, but you don't understand what was actually done to me or what that person did. And we start to make that argument of itself. I, I like and I don't like what the Reverend Jones is saying is that is actually a process of sin also that protects us from seeing our sin. Can you imagine that? Sin keeps us from seeing ourselves as sinful. So what do we do? He says we look to a glimmering conception of God. And what would that mean? That's found in his grace and forgiveness. And the grace and forgiveness we know in Jesus Christ. So how do we begin? Now that hopefully I've aptly got you sitting upright, just as it's done to me many, many times, and still continues to do, how do we begin a process of restoration? How do we begin a process of forgiveness with those that maybe we have unresolved conflict with it. Maybe there's some memorable, maybe even sort of amusing step-by-step -step instructions that we can use to remember how we can start to process unforgiveness and find ourselves back at peace with God and peace with other people. Is there some way, and I started again to consult the ancient wisdom of Laurel and Hardy. 
the ancient wisdom of Laurel and Hardy, who had this little comedy bit for those of you. I wasn't there at the time, just so you know. This was before me. They had a little comedy bit about who's on first. It was nicknames given to baseball players, okay? So the first baseball, first baseman's name was who, and the second base, ba uh, baseman's name was what, and uh, the third baseman's name is I don't know. I'm not doing it justice. Let, let's just hear a little bit of it real quick. You know, strange may seem they give ball players nowadays very peculiar names. Funny names? Nicknames, pet names. Not as funny as my name, Sebastian Dinwiddie. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Funny as in that? Absolutely. Yes, uh, on the St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis I'm, team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Do you know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you who is on first. I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Then who's playing first? Absolutely. <laughs> Well, all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, no. What is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? That's what I'm trying to find out. Well, don't change the players. I'm about. not changing nobody. Take it easy. What's the guy's name on first base? What's the guy's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking about him. <laughs> now, what is it you want to know? What is the fella's name on third base? What is the fella's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third, third base. <laughs> Again, classic comedy bit, but it actually gives us a really helpful framework for how to process unforgiveness. And I like it because it's fun. And I think actually when we begin a season of second chances, it leads us to a greater sense of joy anyway. So the first question is, who is on first? As we're working through a process of grace and forgiveness, we have to ask ourselves, who's on first? Now, most of the time, we're holding ourselves first in the conflict. We're holding ourselves first because we care about ourselves most. But you remember, we're instructed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So just like Martin Lloyd-Jones warned us of, we are naturally self-protective, and we're most likely going to push past painful events and justify ourselves as being the center of attention there. But see, we have to have relationships that, that create opportunities for us to learn to live and give forgiveness. So who are we actually in conflict with? Who is actually on first? And I find it's helpful when I, we talked last week about big picture forgiveness, those major characters in your story. Could be parents or grandparents or some significant figure in your deep past that maybe there's an unresolved conflict that will lead you to having continuing conflicts in the present. Let me give you an example. You know, I talk to couples often who are in marriage crisis, struggle even, and sometimes they've had to walk, unfortunately, with couples through painful separations. And you get to the point where you, I recognize, and this happens pretty often, that where there's unresolvable conflict in the marriage, often it stems from unresolved conflict deeper in their story somewhere else, that they didn't process a pain that was maybe from their parents or from some other aspect of their upbringing, that they don't resolve in the past and they carry that into the present and then it continues to confuse and conflict in their present day relationships. But we keep ourselves first rather than looking at who are we actually mad at? Who are we actually frustrated with? 
Where do we need to go back and give grace so that we can experience it in our present day relationships? I was at our um, Central Conference uh, annual, and there was a speaker there from North Park Seminary, um, and she spoke this. Um, she said, when, when trauma is unprocessed, when trauma is unprocessed, the victims become conditioned to re-experiencing those pains in other relationships. In other words, we don't deal with those big picture grievances from the way past. We carry those grievances on and repeat them in our present day relationships. And we wonder, why are we still having conflict? When actually it may be somebody in our past, an old wound or a past event that our, our hearts keep going back to over and over. Was God with us during those seasons of pain and strife and the way back? Yes, he was. And he can handle our disappointments. You can take your anger to God and those pains, and he can still love you. So when you ask the question, who is on first, the answer should be, God, I'm going to put you first in my story. And sometimes the pain or grievance that we have is with God himself where we don't understand why he did or why he took this away or why he allowed something to happen. He can take that argument, that ar anger. He can accept that, but you have to bring it to him in reverence and worship. But who is on first puts God first in our story, and then we get to this kind of place where we can be like James instructed us as brothers and sisters. Whenever we face trials or testing of any kind, we can even consider it joy because we know that there's a testing of our faith that's producing something, endurance and Endurance has this full effect. We can be joyful and complete in everything, lacking in nothing. When we put God first in our story, we recognize that he is good and sovereign through every season. And when we recall those people that we have had grief with in the way past, we begin to process that story, not with blame and not with hatred, but with grace. Now this, uh, I'll tell you for sure, can take even some time of counseling. You know, I have had to sit through uh, sessions. There was times where I've been brokenhearted, you know, by someone. And I've had to sit with even a counselor. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's a professional counselor. And just work through the pain of the unresolved conflict just to get it out of my system. It's like it says in the Word, when we confess our sins and unforgiveness is a sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive us and set us free. So putting God first in the conflict. Then... We ask the question, what's on second? If you're following along in the book that I've been recommending, Adjust Forgiveness, there's a process there called REACH, where he talks about recalling the pain and empathizing with the person that hurt us. It's trying to see the conflict through the other person's perspective. See, so often in these close relationships, we can just assume, well, that person is just mean. They're just wicked. But guess what we've done? It's just what Jesus said. You're calling him empty of heart, empty of mind. Now, there are some people out there for sure that are evil, but that probably isn't necessarily your spouse or your parents or maybe even that brother or sister that hurt you. When we say what's on second, this is an opportunity for us to be honest about how we've been hurt without judging the other person. We begin to see it from their perspective. How were they feeling? Were they hurt? And did they bring that hurt into the relationship? What's on second means that we have received grace and forgiveness to be able to set others free. We have been set free. Our chains are gone, but we have been set free to give forgiveness and freedom to other people. 
Galatians 5 tells us this. We were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Through love, become slaves to one another. The whole law is summed up like this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. However, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not actually consumed by one another. I know recalling those pains and those stories of the past can be really hard. Like I said, it really does help to have a pastor, maybe a counselor, a good friend, a mature brother or sister to walk you through those grievances of the past. But holding on to unforgiveness is really considered sin. And so to process that out in a non-judgmental way is a great way to begin renewing yourself and entering a season of second chances. Third one. I don't know, is on third. I don't know, third base. One of the most common questions I get as I talk and teach and help people walk through grace and forgiveness is, well, what do I do? What does that mean that I have to do with that person? Here's my answer. I don't know. I don't know what that means for you in your relationship with that person. What I know is the next step after forgiving or giving grace is up to God. We know for sure we're not allowed to let bitterness rule in our hearts. Instead, we're to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. But I don't know what that season will look like for you as you resolve your conflict with that person. But what we're saying is, Lord, will you lead me? Holy Spirit, will you lead me in the process of restoration? However, he may see it fit. Being open to restoration as the Spirit leads. And I don't know what that's going to look like for you in your particular story. I remember years ago, I had a falling out with someone in our church. She was one of our leaders. It was really painful and very sudden, very hurtful. I remember, you know, crying out about it a couple times because it was a very dear friendship that just ended in a second. And then the seasons went on and the years went by and we didn't see each other at all. And there was just this great riff. You ever have that where you're like so close with somebody for a while and then it seems like in an instant you're no longer at all connected. And that went on for a couple of years until by a chance meeting, Literally, the Holy Spirit led me to this coffee shop on, an, on, a, on a weekday afternoon, and there she was. I never had gone to that coffee shop before. Here's the weird part. She had never gone there either. We ended up at that same coffee shop, and instead of glaring at each other and reliving that conflict, we talked. We prayed together. We committed to kind of working it back out. She later came back and rejoined our church and became a leader again. And it was really great. you got to be open to what the Spirit may do in terms of restoration. But that's not always the story. There are some times that I have conflict with someone, I release them in my heart, but I still have to keep healthy boundaries up because you don't know what their motives are. It's okay to protect yourself from ongoing conflict and pain. It's okay to protect yourself. But you also need to be patient with that person that maybe there is an opportunity here for God to continue to grow grace in their hearts. There are also times where in renewing friendship with somebody or fellowship with someone, uh, there's no need for us to really continue in fellowship. There are times that restoration happens, that forgiveness is, is given or uh, a grace is exchanged or maybe even offered in one way, but that doesn't mean we have continuing fellowship. This can be true. Lars asked me a while ago, what happens if it's somebody who's passed on? What if there's no opportunity for you to have forgiveness with somebody who maybe you had a conflict with, but they're gone. They're not with us anymore. That's why I always advocate for the idea of letting them rest, letting them rest in peace, and letting that conflict lay there as well, being open to restoration 
as the Holy Spirit leads you. I tend to think of this in terms of my rule is Target. That's the other place I don't like to go. Target store, literally. My Target rule is if I've had a conflict with somebody and I see them at Target, am I able to greet them and be genuinely cordial and, and, and nice, uh, even if it doesn't mean we're going to stop and have coffee? You know, Can I see you in Target and at least be kind and wish you well genuinely from my heart? To me, that's the Target test. Have I, have I really, truly forgiven that person? But I also recognize with those kind of times, we may share heaven together as if it's a conflict with a brother or sister. We may end up sharing the kingdom of heaven together, and I hope that's true. But that doesn't always mean that we have to share a table together, and it may not always mean we share a church together either. What's vital is being aware of what self-protective thoughts you're trying to keep up, but also letting the Spirit lead you in terms of what does restoration look like. Just look at this last passage before we go to prayer. It's Ephesians chapter 4. It says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. No coincidence that it puts the following passage with it. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, talking bad about others. There's the target rule. Together with all malice, the love of the fight, and be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as Christ has forgiven you. So who is on first is a great question because it's answered in the love of God, our Father. He is truly on first. What's on second? The grace that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ who sets us free so that we can extend freedom and grace to others. I don't know what's on third base in that conflict, but the Holy Spirit does, and it's allowing him to lead you through a process of restoration. What I like about this is, yeah, it's a classic comedy bit that still has some fun to it, but it's actually decidedly Trinitarian as well. The love of the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit be with you. Let's spend some time in prayer, and then we're going to respond in worship. Father, as we consider these words, strong words from Jesus, strong words from Scripture, Father, I ask you to search our hearts. Who's on first? Father, as we might all be able to recall people or points or pains, Father, we recognize that you were never vacant in those moments. You were always there, extending your love over us. Father, this morning we set you first in our hearts, God of all mercy. And we confess, we speak it, and you know it, those pains, those hurts, that unforgiveness. And yet you still love us so fully. And Lord, what's on second is your grace. And we receive that fresh today as we receive new breath into our lungs. May we forgive as we have been forgiven. May we hear your great commandment to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor, even those who we have unprocessed grief with as we love ourselves. So 
what's on, or who, I don't know on third, Lord, we don't, we don't know. But we trust you, Holy Spirit. We trust you to lead us through these conflicts in a way that glorifies you and to close no doors that you don't want closed. And Father, I thank you that you are present with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through all these seasons of conflict and always leading us, Lord, to that great and eternal season of second chances where we'll be with you for an eternity, rejoicing in the grace we have because of your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond with hymn number 606, Restore Us, O Lord.